And I started mm-hmm. to connect these ideas of, of local harvest being a, a sustainable and affordable way to, to eat beyond the, the can of SpaghettiOs. This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a Maine business leader whose life or business was upended in one day and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series seeks to help us make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank. Hi, everyone. I'm Renee Cordes with Maine Biz. Today, we're talking to Lucas Myers, co-founder and operations director of Sopo Seafood in South Portland. Lucas is here to talk about how he teamed up with two partners to start Sopo Seafood as a wholesale business in March 2020. Then COVID shut everything down and the team quickly shifted the business model to online retail sales. Later, when restaurants were back open, they could sell wholesale as well. Plans for a bricks and mortar place were on the back burner until the perfect location became available in South Portland's Knightville neighborhood, and Sopo Seafood jumped on the opportunity to open a seafood market and raw bar in September 2021. Let's hear what happened. Lucas, uh, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Renee. Thanks for having me. Sure. So, uh, Lucas, tell us a bit about uh, yourself. Uh, Where did you grow up? I grew up in Auburn, Maine, which is 45 minutes north of where we are now in South Portland area, greater Portland area. I had been there since I was four years old. So I know that you sort of uh, grew up in a, a fishing family, a very seafood oriented upbringing. So, so tell us a bit about that. Our fishing uh, experiences were recreational. My dad's father uh, did a lot of wade fishing down in Galveston. He was also a traveling salesperson, and he always came home with a cooler full of fish. So <laughs> even as, as, as when I was a kid and I was down at his home in Houston, he would come back, there was a cooler fish. Mom, being from Rhode Island, uh, had an uncle who was a fishing person. Uh, mm-hmm. There was always fish on the table, always seafood on the table. My recreational experience of uh, fishing is certainly more casting than catching. The joke between my dad and I is that uh, my grandfather, his father, caught three generations of fish. <laughs> but you've carried on the tradition in, in your own way. Absolutely. Continuing to, to fish recreationally, uh, going out for mackerel here in the Casto Bay, uh, eventually tried to uh, use that mackerel to get striped bass. Okay. Uh, we, have a, uh, we dig uh, uh, clams and in... Um, Ferry Beach, Scarborough, okay. uh, bring those home. And so my family certainly uh, enjoys the, the seafood harvest recreationally as well. I love seafood. When I got into the business at this wholesale level, I was picking and packing fish and scaling and gutting. And it was as if I was catching it myself. It was definitely a you know, <laughs> replacement for uh, my, my, my lack of luck. I love that. And I remember you tell me uh, your your mother was a very good cook and cooked a lot of seafood dinners. Uh, what, what were some of your favorites? My favorite was always Lingrini and clam sauce. That was probably definitely a throwback to her roots in Rhode Island. Uh, clams are a big thing coming out of the mid-Atlantic. It's interesting, except for soft shell clams up here in Maine, there hasn't really been a hard shell clam harvest commercially until recently. Uh, so that kind of harkened back to her roots and from Rhode Island. So tell us about where you went to college and what you studied. I had um, 
the really good fortune to be able to go to Skidmore College, which is in Saratoga Springs, New York. I uh, have been a baseball player my whole life. I got to play baseball at Skidmore College. I end up majoring in philosophy, not being six foot two and left-handed. I never got to go to the major leagues and pitch. And uh, being a philosophy major, there weren't um, a, a, a streamlined path to, uh, to, to a job. Right. Uh, <laughs> so uh, right out of college, I did actually hike the Appalachian Trail through mm-hmm. a and went down to Texas, lived down there for a year with my girlfriend and now wife at the time. Uh, it moving back and ended up getting this job, which was for the most part to, to pay my bills, to be able to afford an apartment in Portland, to be able to live with my girlfriend who was going to USM at the time. So this job uh, that I got in the wholesale seafood business was just an immediate way to start paying bills and saving money. And uh, lo and behold, it just became a passion working at this, at this job and, and, and seeing all the different fish that we we're bringing in and dealing with the harvesters who are coming in with their five-gallon bucket of scallops or their uh, baby eels, their elvers that they had just caught. It was, it was thrilling to, to be part of this e- exchange. Didn't you also briefly have a, a, a stint as a substitute teacher? I did. That's true. Um, so a minor in education from college led to um, um, what I thought was going to be a career in teaching. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did. I got a job, a substitute teaching in my, in my hometown. And uh, that substitute teaching job became a long-term teaching position when the algebra teacher, I believe, went on maternity leave. And so I actually had my own classroom for almost a full year. Uh, and realized after that year was up that I just hadn't had the life chops, the life experience yet to be able to adequately teach beyond just just the subject matter at hand, which I think is pretty important. Uh, and so, yeah, that then became uh, the transition phase to uh, the seafood world and the restaurant industry, which and which are definitely intertwined. So. So now uh, let, let's go back to your, your job in Portland. Um, you were working for a, a fish wholesaler, I believe. Uh, yeah, that's true. Fish wholesaler. Sounds like it was very, um, you know, a very physically demanding job. Um, we were, yeah, we were throwing boxes around. There were 75, 80 pound boxes. That was back when UPS uh, and FedEx would allow us to pack boxes that big. Um, and uh, totes of, uh, you know, 100, 120 pound totes of fish and ice. And it might be cod being purchased from the Portland Fish Exchange or, or uh, salmon being flown in from uh, Scotland that had been farmed over in Scotland. And uh, the list of, of fish that we uh, were able to purchase, uh, process, and then distribute to restaurants was just amazing. It, it was a world selection of seafood. Um, and gosh, to be able to take some of that fish home mm-hmm. and cook it at that kind of early impressionable age, it felt so incredibly special to be able to put this local cod on our dish at night to eat on a shoestring budget. And I started mm-hmm. to connect these ideas of, of local harvest being a, a sustainable and affordable way to, to eat um, beyond the, the can of SpaghettiOs, which had been like sustenance to today, you know? Yeah. And, and Lucas, tell me about what it was like. You were kind of, you were dealing both with the, um, 
the the fishermen and the restaurants. So tell us about, you know, what what that world was like for you. Yeah, after packing seafood, scaling, gutting, doing the physical processing of the fish, I eventually graduated to a sales job Mm -hmm. uh, in the same company where I was talking to chefs on the phone, talking to them about the seafood I'd just seen down in the warehouse, in the cooler, and uh, giving them ideas for their menu. So we'd be on the phone and say, man, we just bought this cod, came off of this specific boat. I just had these scallops come in from this this diver and the chef would generate a menu around those options. The order would go in, it'd be shipped out to that chef. That chef might be local or might be in New York City, delivered on an overnight truck or maybe shipped out in UPS to Texas or California. And so this, these items, this, this, the seafood that I was seeing mm-hmm. in the morning, yeah. talking to a chef in the afternoon was ending up on the plate the next day. What a thrill to be part of that very tight process. It was just just an amazing opportunity to be able to connect that dot from harvest to plate. And that's something that a lot of people have been talking about, uh, certainly within the last decade, and I know longer, but on a national public consciousness scale, this idea idea of of a farmed table, harvest to table. People understand now it's it's part of our, our, our language, our culture. But back then that was 25 years ago, um, there wasn't quite that connection on a, right. on a national public conscious scale. And so for me to be able to make it was enlightening and eye-opening for sure. Well, very exciting. And so now let's get into your path to entrepreneurship and sort of when did you start thinking of starting your own business? I've always loved oysters. I find them uh, just special. Like they, they, um, connect somebody's past to their present. Everybody has a story about oysters and uh, wh- where and when they first ate them and yeah. who they're eating them with. And then you have the oyster in hand, which is just just a product of, of the present, where it was cultivated, the water says in. So people's experience of that or eating an oyster is this connection between their past and the present. And it's, to me, just a thrilling culinary experience and I wanted to do that beyond selling the oyster to a chef. Okay. I wanted to be the person behind the oyster bar, shucking it and handing it to that person. And so I'd always, I thought this idea of an oyster bar would be the natural progression of that idea. And I talked to my dad about it. And uh, we, we had talked to a little bit about that aha moment. And I, my dad said, you know, it's, it's, uh, he gave me the advice to start small, mm-hmm. uh, to try this idea on a small scale and then develop it from there. And so with that bit of an advice, the idea of a mobile oyster bar came to mind. And uh, I would purchase the oysters from harvesters or a wholesaler. And I would then uh, sell my services as an oyster shucker to caterers. And the caterers could hire me to, to be part of their events. And so after selling seafood on a wholesale level, for, for more than 15 years, it became long in the tooth, so to speak. Chefs are very demanding. Seafood is very perishable. The stress was very high. And so there's a point where I said, okay, I did this for potentially 20% of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm going to explore this idea that is 
going to allow me to kind of exercise that, that that creative instinct I have with this idea that had been maturing in my mind over time. And so um, being married and uh, having two young kids and a wife who was at the time wanting to explore her opportunities in the business world, it was a great time for me to say, okay, I've done this. I'm going to leave my job. I'm going to be able to get more time to my family at home. And at the same time, over time, evolve this idea of a mobile oyster bar. Right. And you started a business called O Oysters. Yeah. And, and it, for the first year, it was all about building this cart, um, mm. which was a custom design. Um, it's all stainless steel. It has big wagon wheels on it. It has a working <laughs> sink. has buckets that oysters wow. are stored in refrigeration has a canopy, kind of a throwback to these old uh, oyster carts that people would be pushing down the streets, right. Pearl Street in Boston, at the same time modern and that I could push it into a trailer and bring it anywhere. And so uh, the first year was developing this cart and at the same time giving some time that I hadn't had with my family at home. And then a year later, all oysters was able to launch. So quite a sophisticated cart. Now we're going to fast forward a bit to the story behind starting your other business venture, SoPro Seafood, with two business partners. Tell us about your business partners and how you knew each other and how this idea came about to start seafood business. Yeah, absolutely. My two business partners, Matt Brown, Josh Edgecombe, both also have ties to the seafood industry. I, as a mobile oyster bar, uh, had an idea to be able to scale my business by starting a wholesale business where I could start to buy my oysters direct from the harvesters, have okay. a cooler to start those oysters in. So out of necessity from moving away from purchasing from a wholesaler who did those things for me to starting to be able to do those myself to kind of make my business vertical, I pushed forward with the idea of starting this wholesale business. And, and Matt Brown was there to say, yeah, I also want a wholesale business. I want to try my hand at purchasing fish myself, storing that fish and selling it directly to chefs, dealing with the shipping and receiving of that product. And uh, Josh was there to say, yes, I, I also want to try my hand to be able to take that wholesale opportunity and turn it into an online retail market where people can also get the same product we're selling to chefs at home whether it be through a local delivery on our own trucks or, or shipping them uh, by overnight. And so we ended up with this kind of three-pronged triumvirate of, of expertise that mm-hmm. dovetailed very well together. Okay. And uh, what, what niche were you guys seeking to fill? A very local, high-quality niche. Um, our idea was that local is best for quality. And quality, of course, is best for the consumer. Now, there are a lot of local wholesalers that are selling to restaurants or um, selling to retail stores who are making Mm -hmm. local made seafood available through a retail experience. Many of them uh, have been doing it for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And we saw a niche in terms of a startup business that was founded on more modern systems. A lot of tracking software is available now, uh, which allows somebody to track, let's say, an oyster from its harvest to its eventually eventual delivery to its end consumer. So we, we've been able to streamline a lot of the traceability through modern so- software functionality. Um, I see. 
And now let's talk about the timing of all of this. You guys, you know, launched a business in 2020, March 2020. So, you know, you were watching the news and what was happening. Was there any sort of nervousness? Uh, what were those, you know, discussions like that you were having with your partners in early 2020, just before you launched? There was definitely trepidation. At the same time, our exposure was very minimal. We had chosen to do it in small steps. Because we had chosen small stepway, we had minimal investment, which made that trepidation uh, minimized. So yeah, we were nervous. We had to look around us and engage what the market was doing without any experience. And that was both in a business sense of starting up a business, but also in a pandemic sense with none of us having any experience in this. Um, no, one, no one did. Um, right. Uh, having minimal investment, we were able to, at the time, take a deep breath and say, okay, slow and steady. We'll work this out as everyone is going to work it out. That sounds like a good um, place to have a short pause. So we're going to take a quick break and then we will continue with the story. This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it, a story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank, and may lose value. So after 20 years of thought, of conversations, of ideas planning, of note-taking, of scribbling, of drawing, of designing, all of a sudden I had to get on the horse. And uh, that's that's one that I'm sure other small business startups can relate to, uh, oh no, here we go feeling. Lucas, you were just telling us about the slow and steady start to SoPo Seafood. Um, take us back to that, you know, first week uh, of business. What do you remember from the first week or first few weeks of business when the whole world had shut down? So I remember the coffee shop meetings between me and my two business partners. A lot of our ideas were on notepads and emails, <laughs> and we had a plan to start a wholesale business that was going to um, cater to local restaurants. And at the same time, while doing so, we were going to develop an online marketplace um, through which we would try to sell to at-home users throughout the country. And I remember the conversations kind of transitioning from progressive planning to more reactive planning as COVID started to kind of supersede our focus. Uh, it, it, at the time, it was no longer a business plan in which we were going to move step by step through. But right. then we had to react to this new marketplace, this, this new social concern. Okay. Um, and the blueprints that we had, had devised weren't going to work in that present setting because we were relying so heavily on the restaurant industry, which was initially, I mean, the most impacted industry 
for everyone in our community. And so what did you do? How did you proceed from there? Our reaction was very much, I think, one out of concern for harvesters. When restaurants shut down, um, it was readily apparent that harvesters, fishing people who mm-hmm. um, relied on on ground fish and uh, lobstering people and, and uh, scallop harvesters, they lost their customer base. Right. And we were able to connect those harvesters with local retail customers really quickly. And we saw an immediate possibility to get their products into people's homes who no longer were going out to eat and who no longer were going into supermarkets. Uh, but instead, all of a sudden, we're transitioning very quickly to a home delivery service. How did you get the word out to those at-home users? And I'm also curious, how did you get that e-commerce site up and running so quickly? Yeah, so as we, we had this idea that we we're going to build our e-commerce site over time to yeah. develop this national shipping network. We had started to build on Shopify this um, system of, of shipping and receiving and order-taking. And we immediately transitioned that to a local delivery uh, platform. Uh, It was very rudimentary. People would be able to see photos of what they could buy. And then they were actually emailing us an order. And we were taking that order and putting it into a Gmail spreadsheet. (laughs) And then um, uh, going to MapQuest. And, and putting the addresses through and, and running a route and eventually taking that fish after putting it into little boxes and, and delivering it to people's homes on that route. And all of a sudden, uh, people's creative culinary juices were inspired because they were now at home. And uh, there was a frying pan and a stove there at <laughs> a lot of time. Uh, and so people started immediately looking for, for options out there. Through social media, we were able to connect the products of, of our harvesting network to uh, the at-home chefs or aspiring at-home chefs of the COVID era. And it was just the three of you running this. So were you all doing a bit of everything? Uh, oh, you know, yeah, absolutely. Doing the warehouse, who was doing the website? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was um, a little bit of everything. <laughs> Each person did have their focus. Um, I, at the time, was still dealing uh, with the startup, the starting up of the business. And uh, I was also the delivery driver. Um, and uh, <laughs> Pitching in where you had to, right? Yeah. And, and Matt was taking care of our warehouse. Um, he was uh, doing the purchasing. He was boxing up his orders. He was doing a lot of the physical labor, the cutting of the seafood. And Josh was taking care of the online systems through Shopify, through the Gmail spreadsheets, trying to connect those and trying to develop them as quickly as possible into one unified system. I see. And then eventually, you know, when restaurants opened and they were doing takeout, did you start that line of the business? Yeah. uh, And that didn't take long. It's amazing how resilient our restaurant community is, how creative they are. Uh, and how efficient they are in terms of getting their creative ideas into the marketplace. And so, yes, it, it did not take long for restaurants to all of a sudden start offering take up curbside pickup. These were 
these were not curbside pickup wasn't a term used right. for COVID. And right. now it's ubiquitous in our language, <laughs> right? And that happened so quickly. And we had people who were putting together culinary baskets. I think of Sir Lee, a restaurant uh, in Portland, uh, creating culinary baskets from their vending partners. And they mm-hmm. had you know, farm fresh greens and uh, seafood from Sopo Seafood, cocktails. And uh, a, a consumer could go to Sir Lee and buy a basket and pick it up on Friday night and have this culinary experience for three days over the weekend. So we were connecting with a lot of the chefs who were creating these very inspirational options for the at-home users. I know that you had an idea going going way back when to have a seafood market and raw bar. And you sort of put that on the, the back burner for, for a while. Tell us about what your plan was and then how that changed. I've had a desire to run a raw bar for over two decades. I'd even looked at space in a downtown uh, South Portland commercial building. I was too young to afford it at the time. I told friends about it. It had been just kind of part of this drive. Uh, and I'm stubborn. And, and that idea just continued to persist. Having an idea and not letting it go and continually testing it through conversation with peers, through small steps in business, like a, a mobile oyster bar, um, was just the way that I went about getting to a point where I said, yeah, I, th- this is it. This is, this is what I want to do. And then the space became available to do it in. I looked at night I said, that's it right there. That's, that's where I'd like my uh, retail market and raw bar to be. What was uh, it about Nightville that you liked? And it, for, it, there may be listeners out there who don't know South Portland at all. South Portland is connected to Portland by, by a bridge. And uh, it's, it's a drawbridge. And so one never knows if it's going to take 10 minutes or 40 minutes to get to <laughs> that's Portland. That's true. And once in Portland... Being a rapidly growing city, one doesn't know what they're going to confront with traffic and and Mm -hmm. delays there. All of the seafood outside of our major supermarkets here in South Portland need to be traveled to. You you had to go across the bridge Mm -hmm. um, and down into a very busy sector of Portland in order to be able to, to have that small a hands-on retail seafood experience. Mm-hmm. And I there was wanted, nothing on this side of the bridge. I wanted to bring it to this side of the bridge. And that's what Nightville presented was a, a, an area that was on this side of the bridge that had a main street that is uh, not necessarily the center of South Portland, being, being a very spread out or sprawling right. uh, city, but had the potential to, to be a center focus. And um, and this space became available. It had been a, a diner. Uh, yeah, I I donned Uncle Andy's diner uh, with my three year old to get their grilled blueberry muffins <laughs> eggs every now and then. It had been a generational business, but it had its challenges, mm-hmm. and um, and and I think COVID was was certainly the last challenge uh, that that the last hurdle they just couldn't jump. And so it, it did end up closing. And so after 
20 years of thought, of conversations, of ideas, planning, of note taking, of scribbling, of drawing, of designing. <laughs> all of a sudden I had to get on the horse. And uh, that's that's one that sure other small business startups can relate to. Uh, oh, no, here we go feeling. Um, and you called one of your business partners uh, right after you saw the sign. What, what was that call like? Okay, well, uh, credit where credit due, it was actually Matt who sent me a text and said, uh, is it crazy or is the old Uncle Andy's spot the spot for <laughs> an oyster barn market? And uh, I had been, I guess, harboring that oh no feeling a little bit and maybe kind of pushing it down because it's a scary moment when all of a sudden you're going to take a big, big step. And I texted him back immediately and he said, yeah, it's right there. Here we go. And how fast did you guys then act? How fast did you jump on this opportunity? I, I reached out to the, uh, to the owner of the building the next day. And uh, the site had been up for a little while. And um, it was two years ago. Um, so there, people were not filling rental spaces. Businesses were going out of business. They weren't, they weren't going into business. And uh, so... Um, Fortunately, the owner was very open-eared. And uh, so we did have an extended conversation about what the space could become and how we'd go about doing it with the owner who became partner in that initial development, uh, which was simply getting the space rented under contract. Right. And didn't you spend a whole year uh, refurbishing this place and, and getting it ready? Yeah, yeah. We did end up actually gutting it right down to the studs, pulling up the floor, the ceiling. It was uh, it was a shell by the time we had done the demo. <laughs> and then we had to start building again. And that did take a full year um, of, of leasing the space and also paying for renovations. So Pro Seafood uh, was still a fairly new business. So... Was it a kind of scary thing to then be putting money into this uh, bricks and mortar operation? Oh, gosh, yeah. So every dollar that we were making through our wholesale and online functions was being reinvested in the construction and development of the space. Any sleepless nights during all this? Yeah, toss and turn a little bit. Okay. Absolutely. I would toss and turn. Once that cork had, had, had come off, uh, and I got over that initial, uh, oh no, here we go feeling. It, it was, it was no holds barred charging, charging for it. I was very confident in the planning, the idea, uh, the development of which had taken, um, over, over, uh, you know, half my life. I had been thinking about it. So at that point I was very, very excited. Excited is a good thing. And you opened in, uh, October, 2021, I believe. True. Yep. What was that first day like for you? I mean, to see that dream realized uh, going back decades, you know, all the scribblings and the sketches. Uh, I didn't, I did not let myself uh, get uh, caught up in that. All of a sudden a customer came in the door and I was punching the buttons and crossing my fingers. They were working and uh, <laughs> making change and um, the practical work yeah, became uh, rose very quickly to the forefront, and so I never really got to dive into the 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 
emotions of starting up a business and having it all sudden operating for real. Right. And and let's fast forward to today. How how is business going? If you can just um, share a few words. How big is the team now? Um, so um, we started with three owners um, who were not paying themselves. And um, we're reinvesting all the money into the operations. We are still reinvesting all the money into the operations. But we now have 20 employees. Um, and we are making a weekly paycheck ourselves as owners. And we are constantly developing uh, our business plan towards the next small step. Uh, customers are coming through the door daily. We, we have developed friends uh, who are clients and customers, and to be able to talk with them daily is a thrill. So I, I would say the big picture is going very well. The small picture, which is the daily grind, is is uh, difficult. It's a challenge to deal with the finances, to deal with the regulations, to deal with crew of employees who all have their own personal needs which are most important to us. And uh, to do all that in an economy that is causing concern for, for, for people, uh, both in business and at home. But the reward is when we pull back and look at the picture, big picture and say, wow, we've come this far so quickly and we're still progressing and have so much to go. And, and we're confident in our ability to do so because We've been able to successfully uh, do what we've done today. Could you ever envision another uh, bricks and mortar location somewhere down the road? I think that'd be incredible. I think that Sopo Seafood has um, been um, a well-received entity in our community. It's become a, a community spot where people are coming in, having conversations. Uh, we have speakers every weekend. We have oyster shucking tutorials. Uh, honestly, our, our our local community has has rallied around the spot and and will gather there. And to have that opportunity to put that idea in somewhere else um, is is pretty exciting. I, I'd I'd be really happy um, if we were able to do that. Great. And now, uh, sort of, you know, to to round this out, Lucas. Now that you've had time to step back and and can look back. You know, what are some things that you've learned uh, as a business owner uh, along the way? You know, the good, the bad, the surprising. What are some one or two lessons that stand out from you from this experience? I know that this is a marathon, not a sprint uh, in terms of running a business. So it's extremely important not to dwell on the setbacks of the day. Um, there's no finish line in sight, which if looked at one way can be extremely daunting, but if looked at the other way can be empowering. And so my daily challenge is to feel relieved that this is a long-term process so that I don't need to be frustrated by the setbacks of the now. Um, and, and I think that'd be important for any business owner who's starting up a business to, to come to terms with, to know that it's okay that there's no finish line, 
come to terms with that. There's going to be plen- uh, plenty of time to correct course. At the same time, the most difficult part of the business for me in the startup phase was not the starting up of it. Eventually, I had the oh no moment. Here we go. But the excitement around materializing an idea is constantly driving me forward. Now that that idea is real and it's happening, now we're in a grind. And the grind can be challenging. It's the opportunity to progress our business and to continually create through the business. That's that's what's going to relieve the stress of the grind for me and hopefully for other uh, business startups. This has been a production of MainBiz. Find out more about this podcast and other MainBiz media products at mainbiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank. The MainBiz podcast team includes Renee Cordes, Will Hall, Allison Mason, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedanka. Logo and marketing design by Matt Selva. Subscribe to the MainBiz podcast at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Copyright 2022.